This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 11. Actually, we begin our reading in in chapter 10. We read this morning verses uh, 6 through 16, which describe uh, the the continued uh, reversion to idolatry among Israel, uh, that pattern of their being oppressed as as, as the Lord's response to their waywardness uh, with that one twist that we saw, uh, that they again cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, we've been here before, we've done this, uh, I'm not going to deliver you anymore, uh, rather go and call out to your idols, call out to the gods you have chosen, and let them save you. That's pretty harsh, it's certainly understandable. And the Lord is patient, but that patience does reach an end. And yet, even in that, they humble themselves. They call out for God's help. And uh, we read those great words in verse 16. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. He, he wanted to hand them over, but he just couldn't do it. He, he, he was too grieved by the misery of his people. And so what I want to do is pick up in, in verse 17 and then proceed, pretty long passage, through chapter 11 into chapter 12 in the, in the strange story of Jephthah. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was also the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, but you are the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows connected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight with the Ammonites. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Well, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. 
The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went out with the elders of Gilead, went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me? You've come to me to fight against my land. The king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, and now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Eroer and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrongly by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, uh, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, as far as Abel-Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. 
For I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And he said, No. They said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray uh, with thanksgiving as we come to your word that you would open our minds to understand the truths that you have for us here. Uh, Father, we uh, recognize that this is your word, that it is living and active, and pray that you would teach us those things you would have us know. In Christ's name, amen. It might be helpful to be reminded uh, in this election year of the ultimate disappointment any human leader will bring. Certainly, as we've been studying the book of Judges, uh, we have seen that, uh, that, that there's no earthly leader, no earthly ruler, governor, king, whatever, but is flawed and will disappoint in any number of ways. Even the best. We see that in Judges. We see that uh, even in, in the Scriptures as a whole. Uh, to where we ultimately come to the conclusion in the Bible that when you get right down to it, the Bible contains no hero but Jesus. Uh, there were men who, in some ways, were, were worthy of imitation. Women who, in, in some ways, are worthy of imitation, uh, and yet only partially so, because they're sinners, because they, like all of us, are flawed. And that's why uh, even a passage of... Um, Mixed results like this one, uh, maybe especially why a passage like this one points us to Christ. Ultimately, the Bible contains no hero but Jesus. 
Now, we see that with someone like David, uh, but we certainly see it with someone like this man, Jephthah. Uh, if you want to look at this passage as we've just read, fairly lengthy passage, we can really divide it up into two, two parts, two halves. The first half, that of triumph. The second half, that of tragedy. And it really contains both. And is that not the story of, of human rulers, a story of human life, triumph and tragedy? But we see that uh, pretty pretty graphically and, and even curiously here in the story of Jephthah. First of all, it's whole matter of triumph. The first uh, part of this passage is is good. I mean, it's, 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 there's victory. There's, there's triumph, although somewhat mixed, but basically a, a good thing. You have this case where uh, Israel, again, uh, is, is now being oppressed, this time by the Ammonites, and they start looking about in Gilead for a leader. Who's the man who are we going to fight against the Ammonites? Well, well, we'll make him our head. Now, again, Gilead, the Ammonites, all of this is somewhat regional. Uh, a lot of these things that happened in the book of Judges didn't really concern all of Israel, but a part of Israel taking place at different times or maybe overlapping. But the Ammonites are encroaching and they're looking for a leader. And then we're introduced to Jephthah. is a mighty warrior, likely candidate. There's just one problem. He's the son of a, a prostitute uh, that we read. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, but the problem is Gilead's wife bore him sons, and those sons cast out Jephthah because he is the son, as they say, of another woman. Uh, in some ways, you, you um, see some parallels with Abimelech. A lot of differences here, but at least in that instance, there's something of a, of a similarity, kind of being the, 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 the odd son out who comes to power. Uh, in the case of Abimelech, through his own strategies, uh, but in the case of Jephthah, he's, he's approached by those who, who drove him out. So he goes out, lives in the land of Tob, uh, gathered some, as it says, worthless fellows, and then hung out there. Well, the Ammonites are coming, and when the Ammonites of Resvab made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah to bring him from the land of Tob. And they said, come be our leader, so we can fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah's response is great. Wait a minute. You know, didn't you hate me? Didn't you throw me out? Didn't you drive me away? Why have you come to me now? Now that you're in trouble. Sure, now you come to me looking for help. And they sort of whitewash all that. Verse 8, uh, the elders said to Jephthah, that's why we have turned to you now. That doesn't really follow. It's almost like they're trying to just deflect. Yes, yes, but look, this is why we've turned to you now. Uh, I was you know, hoping he hadn't remembered all that unpleasantness, but of course he did. Uh, no matter, they uh, they are after him. They want him to be their leader. And so the, this man who was despised and rejected becomes their leader. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. Jephthah and the, the elders of Gilead come to an agreement. If he does take up the mantle of their leader in battle against the Ammonites and the Lord gives victory, then he says, I will be your head. It's not quite a sign, but more of a condition. If this happens and I survive and we win, then yes, I will, I will be your head. Not the word king is studiously avoided, but your head, uh, made him head and leader over them. That's probably a good thing. And so that's the agreement that they come to. He, this, this rejected man becomes the leader. So we're all set. We're all set for the battle, the big showdown. Jephthah, the mighty warrior, 
once rejected, now has become the leader. He's going to lead the men of Gilead into battle against the Ammonites. And they get into a war, all right. But it's a war of words. This is one of the wordiest chapters in the book of Judges, just not in terms of numbers of words, but just there's so much conversation, so much talk, so much that has to do with words, vows, so forth, uh, going on. They're expecting him to, to, to go into battle, and instead they get in this long, protracted discussion via their messengers um, that, that comes down to this whole question of why are the Ammonites attacking? Jephthah sends messengers. He doesn't lead into battle. He sends a messenger. Verse 12 says, what do you have to do against me? You've come to fight in my land. And the king of the Ammonites basically says, well, because when Israel came out of Egypt, they took our land. We want it back. Well, Jephthah's answer involves some history here, beginning in verse 15. He basically says, oh, back up. Let's get the facts straight here. And he, he rehearses some of that history uh, in verse 15 and following. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up uh, through the wilderness of the Red Sea, came to Kadesh, they sent messengers to Edom, let us pass through your land. Uh, sent messengers to Moab, uh, to Sion, please let us pass through your land. You can go back and read about that. I mean, they very politely asked to pass through their land, but these people didn't trust them. Didn't, didn't want this vast company of people coming through their land for whatever reason. So he basically backs up and says, let's get the facts straight. And they go through that down to about verse 20. And on the basis of that, Jephthah then starts to give arguments why Ammon is, is so wrong in attacking because they want their land. You think, okay, mighty warrior, we've gotten to what amounts to, you know, a legal case, uh, almost a judicial dispute here. That's sort of anticlimactic. But look at some, what some of his arguments are. Uh, he argues again from history, verses 21 and 22, um, where he says, The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people in the land of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Uh, he's saying that the land didn't belong to Moab, it didn't belong to Am- Ammon, it belonged to the Amorites. A totally different group of people this land came from, not the Ammonites who were now trying to oppress them. It wasn't yours, it was Amorite land. Um, he then proceeds to argue from theology. Look at, uh, look at verse 23, 24. He says, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites, from the Arnon uh, to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, uh, you'll notice the small caps, Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not take possession of what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So he basically says, look, the, the Lord gave us this land. It wasn't your land anyway, and, and it was the Amorites' land, and it was the Lord who gave us the Amorites' land. And you need to just accept what Chemosh, your God, gives you. You know, the Lord, our God, gave us this land. You need to just be happy with what your God, Chemosh, gives to you. Now, this isn't to say that he accepts Chemosh as a legitimate or even you know, living, existent deity. He just recognizes this as, as their deity. Uh, and of course, Israel's whole... Uh, reason for being uh, coming out of Egypt was it was the arm of the Lord. It was the act of the Lord that brought them out of Egypt, that brought them into the promised land, delivered the land to them. Uh, and that was their, their whole, that was, you know, the prime 
point of their theology, that they existed and were in the land by the, the might, the power of the Lord. And his answer reflects that. You know, look, you, you should settle for what your God is able to, to deliver and give to you. And he says in verse 24, all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. And of course, that's Israel's whole point there, what they were doing. So this theology argument, you know, you have to be content with what your God gives you. Argument from precedent, verse 25. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? So he points back to a precedent. You'll remember Balak was the one who, who got Balaam to come and, and try to get him to pronounce a curse on Israel. And every time he'd open his mouth, he blesses Israel, and the king's about to pull his hair out. You know, maybe if you get a different location, you know, a different vantage point. Um, but he never tried to attack. He never tried to do anything against Israel. That's, that's Jephthah's point here. Look, even Balak, king of the Moabites, he, he didn't attack. He didn't try to do this kind of thing that you are doing to us. Yeah, if it wasn't Balak's problem, it shouldn't be yours either. And then there's an argument from silence, verse 26. He says, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aroer and its villages, and all the cities are on the banks of the Orna for 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? Uh, basically saying, you know, if this is your land, if it's such a big deal, why is it taking you 300 years to bring it up? You know, it hadn't been a problem before now. So uh, these are all his reasons. He, he, he resets the record on the history, and then he, he from that, he delivers these, these various arguments. You think, wait a minute, they were looking for a military leader, and they got a lawyer. Um, what, what's with that? It, it is curious that the whole battle is, is a verse or two, and you, know, you have this long, extended discussion. But what about that? Well, part of it is, uh, is, is certainly for... Uh, the Ammonites, but part of this is for Judges, uh, the readers of Judges, Israel later, uh, kind of as an apologetic for who they are and for the land that they have uh, later. Well, what was the effect? Well, um, Jephthah wraps up his case, verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and do me, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So there, he wraps up, has his closing argument. He's, as the, the mighty warrior, has successfully made his case why well, Ammon is totally wrong in attacking Israel. However, uh, the, the king of the Ammonites apparently uh, says, well, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Verse 28, the king of Amorites, Ammonites didn't listen to the words that Jephthah, uh, that he had sent to him. It's too bad. They were great words, very eloquent, well put, good, concise argument, to no effect whatsoever. And so you do have uh, the eventual battle, uh, verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, or as Abel Kirmim, great blow. The Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Two verses, battle, the Lord gives the Ammonites in their hand, they win. You know, the legal case goes on forever, the battle's very short, actually a very small part of this whole story of Jephthah. The emphasis really is on that defense, that argument of Israel's right to this land. But that's the triumph, such as it is. Uh, and that's good. And, and he's right. And, and maybe right trying to avert a battle. That's, that's a good thing. He's not a bloodthirsty man. He's not just looking for a fight. He really does make a good faith effort to try to uh, deliver Israel with words, without going to war. 
however, Ammon is, is, is unconvinced. And so they do end up in a battle, and Ammon loses the battle. The Lord gives victory to his people. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the, uh, the triumph. The Lord does use Jephthah in that way. The tragedy is, and the irony is, that at the end of the day, it really was Israel who suffered more, even though they won, than the Ammonites did. And we see that in two events that take place here, again involving words. Uh, one involves this vow that uh, Jephthah makes in verse 30. Made a vow saying, if you'll give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's the, the vow that he makes. And, and, of course, the Lord gives them the, the victory. So Jephthah's coming home, and what is the first thing, or who is the first person, to meet him as he returns but his only daughter comes out? Tambourines with dances, maybe celebrating he's coming home triumphant and gotten word of it. Uh, emphasis is made that she's his only daughter that she is not married, that she is a virgin, she's had no children. And Jephthah tore, tore his clothes and just is, is apparently genuinely heart-stricken. Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low to the triumph. You've become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Now, this whole thing is is really sort of weird. I mean... It's it's a rather rash vow, if not well-intentioned. It was well-intentioned. You know, Lord, I want to want to honor you, want to make a sacrifice to you. If you'll just give me the victory, I'll honor you, give you credit for it, worship you. That's good, but the, the form of it was sort of rash. But if it was an ill-considered vow, it was even more ill-considered to keep it. It almost seems to him to be a point of honor. You know, this is horrible, but I've made this vow and I've got to do it. Uh, almost as baffling, his daughter agrees and says, yes, you, you have to do this. Uh, and so she has two months to mourn with her friends uh, her virginity, which is probably just a reference to the fact that she will never, uh, never marry, never have children. The line of Jephthah will be ended uh, and that happens, and then it says that he, he did to her uh, according to his vow. And the daughters of Israel each year would lament uh, lament her, her departure. There's some debate over what happened, over what really happened here. There's some who said, I actually didn't do it. And the language of the vow is, I will either offer up a sacrifice to you, or, or uh, I'll offer up something to you, or offer a burnt offering. And, and there's some possibility of that, but... Uh, very clearly, the implication is that he offered her up as a sacrifice, as a, as a burnt offering. But should he have kept his word? Well, of course not. It was, it was foolish to make the vow. It was even more foolish to keep the vow. And in fact, uh, you'd say, well, you know, he made a vow of the Lord. Shouldn't he keep it? Well, the answer to that is no. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 5, and uh, going on uh, verse 4 and following, uh, speaks to some of those things. It says in Leviticus 5, verse 4, If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it's hidden from him, 
When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he's committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat or so forth. There's this this provision if he's made this rash vow. Uh, He can acknowledge the the guilt of that and seek atonement for that without having to fulfill the the foolish vow he's made. I mean, there there was a way out here that the Lord himself even provides, uh, simply to acknowledge the foolishness of the Lord and, and be done with it. And the Lord accepts that offer a sacrifice of an animal uh, for his guilt in making a silly vow. But that doesn't happen. And there's this tragedy uh, that his daughter's sacrifice, this, this darkens and, and saddens what should be a triumphant moment for, uh, for Israel. And instead, it's kind of a blight on it. The second, uh, the second incident that emphasizes the tragedy of this doesn't concern a vow, but it concerns a password. Again, words. Uh, you have this situation, chapter 12, verse 1, where the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they go up against Jephthah and the Gileadites. And they're like, what on earth is going on? Ephraim has this way of waiting until it's safe and then going in and saying, why didn't you involve us? You know, you'll remember uh, back in chapter 8, uh, they do that with Gideon. Chapter 8, verse 1, and the, Gideon defeats the Midianites. The men of Ephraim said to him, what's this you've done? You didn't call us when you went to fight Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And, of course, he, he placates them by flattering them, you know, saying, well, who are we compared to you, and so forth. Um, well, here's Ephraim again. Uh, they, they come up and uh, you say, why didn't you cross against you know, cross the Ammonites? Uh, it, didn't you call us to go up with you? We're going to burn your house down with you in it. And, and Jephthah, Jephthah's more to the point than Gideon, not quite so tactful and diplomatic. He said, look, we had this fight with the Ammonites. I called you and you didn't, you didn't help. When I saw you weren't going to do anything, I acted. So why have you come up against me? Well, they wind up in a fight with with with. Ephraim, the irony was with the Ammonites, he went on with this long, wordy case. Here with, the, with his own kinsmen, the Ephraimites, they quickly wind up fighting each other, which again is part of Judges, just showing that disintegration of Israel and within Israel uh, during this time of the Judges. And they wind up in this fight. The Gileadites managed to capture with Jephthah the fords of the Jordan River. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim came and they needed to cross to get back, they would say, let me go over. And Gilead says, well, are you an Ephraimite? No, 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 of course not. Okay, say Shibboleth. Well, apparently there was a speech pattern that had developed uh, where in saying that word, uh, the Ephraimites couldn't say it the same way. Instead of having the H as Shibboleth, they would say Sibboleth. It was worth familiar with that. I mean, we, we know different regional speech Patterns. Uh, Southerners talk one way. You know, New Englanders talk another way. We understand each other, but we can also hear the difference. Well, that was their test. That was the shibboleth. That's where that word comes from, of course. A test, you know, uh, to, to, to do it the right way or say it the right way. The shibboleth um, that they applied. And if they said shibboleth, they died. They were struck down. Because they, it says, as he said, they couldn't pronounce it right. Uh, right by whose standards? Well, obviously Jephthahs and the Gileadite, Gileadites. They couldn't pronounce it right. Couldn't talk right. Uh, so they'd kill him. And 42,000 of the Ephraimites 
died. Not all right there at the fords of the, the Jordan, although many would die there trying to cross to get home. But they were they were killed. And the outcome of this battle was that a large number of their fellow Israelites in Ephraim died. And so this 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 pride of Ephraim, you know, they're not not content, as one person put it, with the throne on the right or the throne on the left. They wanted the throne in the middle every time. Now, why didn't you call us? Um, sometimes people tend to be that way. You know, they want to be it. They don't want to be. Uh, on the sidelines, they want to be in the spotlight, and they're not happy till they are. Ephraim seemed to kind of have that that problem, and so it says in seven, Jephthah judged Israel six years, not very long by standards of some of them, and he died and was buried in uh, Gilead. And then there's a record of some some lesser known judges that that round out the chapter. But you know, this the, the, you look at this, and there's triumph. There's a victory. It's a good thing, and yet it's so overshadowed by the flaws of of both Jephthah himself and others in Israel that it overshadows this salvation that this human leader, this human judge brings, and just reminds us that on earth, human leaders will bring us at best a very marred, uh, defective salvation. Someone drew a comparison between Jephthah and Jesus. Like Jephthah, Jesus was despised and forsaken. Uh, like, like Jephthah, uh, Jesus is the deliverer of his people. Uh, however, it's, it's obviously very different. That's where the comparisons end. Uh, unlike Jephthah, the delivery that Jesus brings, the salvation that Jesus brings, is not flawed. It's not tainted with sadness. We recognize, even here, even as Israel cried out and the Lord raises up this flawed man, uh, it does remind us and point us to the fact that ultimately our hope is not in any human leader. Our hope is in the Lord. And that full and perfect and unalloyed salvation uh, comes only and ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as we're in this world, we will have triumphs. But they will always be tainted with some degree of tragedy, some shortcoming, uh, until that day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do live in a fallen world, and we thank you for the good we enjoy. Thank you for good leaders, Lord. Thank you for the blessings that are here. And yet, Lord, we recognize even the best of this world, whether we're talking about government or relationships or whatever it might be, is always going to be flawed, always going to be tainted, always going to have some bittersweet element to it because of our sin and the sin of others around us. Uh, Fathers, we read this passage, uh, come away feeling very ambivalent about Jephthah, Lord. Uh, and yet, Lord, he's like so many human leaders. You use him to accomplish your purposes, and yet, Lord, his sin, the sin of others, uh, always makes the results less than they might otherwise have been. But, Father, we look forward to a new earth uh, where Jesus is king, where the leadership is perfect, where the outcome is always ideal and right, uh, and never tainted, never tainted with sin and shortcoming, certainly not with tragedy. Father, we give thanks to you for that hope that is ours. And, Lord, we pray for your blessing in this world. We pray, Lord, for wisdom and goodness, and justice and righteousness in our leaders, and in ourselves, and in one another. And by your grace, Father, uh, that we would experience triumph as your people, uh, and that the tragedy would be minimum. 
We ask it out of your goodness and by your grace. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.